0: Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Once upon a time. Those are the words that are the beginning point of many great stories. When we hear those words, once upon a time, people stop what they're doing. They turn toward the speaker. They lay aside their pens and their phones and other distractions. The kids put away their toys, and they listen. Because, after all, all the world loves a story, right? Once upon a time. It's with those words, according to the message paraphrase, that the book of Ruth begins. Once upon a time. It's a story, a tale of a family. Truthfully, it's a saga of anguish and joy. And today we begin that journey with this family, four-part series based on the Old Testament book of Ruth, Once Upon a Time. Now in a moment when we begin to read the passage, we will notice that immediately, the writer sets the historical context. The writer immediately wants us to know when this story is taking place. He will say, basically, once upon a time, in the period of the Judges. You recognize that period. The Judges was the book immediately prior to the book of Ruth. It was a dark, a deadly, a diabolical time. If you read the book of Judges lately, don't read it at bedtime. It'll keep you up at night. It's a time when God's people, yes, there are times when they turn to God in repentance, but there are many other times when they turn and they walk away from God, and it leads to devastation and disaster. It's an awful time. In fact, did you know that the last words to be spoken in Scripture before the book of Ruth begins, it's the final line in the book of Judges, are these words... In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? It ought to. We're almost there again. But it was definitely the context of the book of Judges. People did whatever they felt like doing, whatever they felt was right. And I can tell you, I can guarantee you, when everybody does what is right in their own eyes, other people get hurt, deeply hurt, deadly experiences. And that was the book of Judges. So it's during that time, the time of the book of Judges, that suddenly the picture focuses in upon a man, a woman, a family, a saga of anguish and joy. So we begin reading in the Old Testament book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1. We're going to read the first five verses of the chapter. It says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malin and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. We're just five verses into the book and already utter tragedy, utter devastation, utter emptiness for Naomi. I mean, just consider what has happened in her life. First of all, not enough food to eat. Kids around Bethlehem crying out, Mommy, I'm hungry. Bethlehem, that that name means house of bread. It was part of the breadbasket of Israel. So if you're in trouble there with food shortage, you're in trouble. Then she left her home. She and her husband and her two sons left home. And then she went to live in Moab, a hostile land. And then a funeral for her husband. And then a funeral for son number one. And then a funeral for son number two. Can you imagine the sorrow? The devastation that would have set in to Naomi's life. She has basically lost it all. Now it is true, she still has two daughters-in-law. But they're foreign women. They're Moabites. The Israelites and the Moabites, not good. And so Naomi is left to utter heart-wrenching grief. Do you know what that's like? Are you grieving today? Grieving a, a deadly diagnosis? Grieving the death of a family member, the death of a marriage, the death of a job, a career. You grieving? Naomi understands. And so too, I think, does Philip Yancey, as he pins these words, the great Christian writer, writes this. Shortly after Christmas 2012, writes Yancey, I address the New England town of Newtown, Connecticut a community reeling from the murder of 20 school children and six teachers and staff just days prior. An ambulance driver captured the mood in Newtown well. All of us on the fire and ambulance corps are volunteers, he told me. We don't train for something like this. Nobody does. <laughs> and my wife is a teacher at Sandy Hook. She knew all 20 children by name as well as the staff. After hiding out during the carnage, she had to walk past the bodies of her colleagues in the hallway. He paused, says Yancey, to control his voice, then continued. Everyone experiences grief. Usually, though, you bear grief as if in a bubble. You go to the grocery store, you go back to work. Eventually, that outer world takes over more of you, and the grief begins to shrink. But here in Newtown, we go to the store and we see memorials to the victims. We walk down the street and see markers on the porches of those who lost a child. It's like a bell jar has been placed over the town with all the oxygen pumped out. We can't breathe for our grief. I think Naomi I think Naomi could relate. I can't breathe for my grief. The oxygen has been sucked out of my life. Not one loss, not two losses, three losses of life, and then other losses on top of that. And the questions that accompany such why? Where is God? Why me? Does God care? But then into the life of Naomi, there shined a flickering light, a flickering light that held out some hope. Word on the street was that there was food, food back in Bethlehem. And when she heard that, She had to act. Back to Ruth, chapter 1, this time, verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of His people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Just a light. Word on the street. Somebody, aren't you from Judah, Bethlehem? Here there's food back there. And Naomi says, God is moving. And so she sets out on the journey to return home. What would that have been like for Naomi? What is it like to leave a place knowing that you leave behind you the graves of the most important people in your life. What would that have been like? When I have the privilege of going back, back home, back to Texas, when I go back to see mom, my brother, my two sisters, their families, There's always a first stop I make driving into town. It's at the town cemetery. Every time I go, it's the first stop. Pull up there, the quiet place, the headstone, Bobby Roberts. I stopped to pay my respects to Dad. And when I leave to come back to California, back to my new home here, new as of 33 years ago, when I leave to return, the last stop I make, leaving town, is a cemetery. Dad. And it never fails. When I drive away from that cemetery to head back to California, there's a sadness. There's a wistfulness that I could speak to him and say, Dad, you're not forgotten. What's it like to walk away from a place leaving three graves behind? what would the journey back to Bethlehem have been like? Do you, do you suppose that Naomi told stories, stories of when they had headed to Moab, stories of a, a, of a full family, a healthy family? Hungry, yes, but all together. Well, the text doesn't tell us specifically what the journey was like, uh, What they talked about on the way? Did she tell the stories? Did she weep over the graves left behind? But what the text does tell us is what happened when they got back to Bethlehem. Small town Bethlehem, Ruth chapter 1. This time I begin in verse 19, partway through the verse. It describes what happened upon her arrival back home. When they arrived in Bethlehem, says the text. The name Naomi means pleasant. The name Mara means bitter. And when the word spreads around town, Naomi's home, I think that's Naomi. Is that Naomi? You know how small towns are. How quickly the word spreads, how quickly the news is all over town like the two neighbors over the back fence. One saying, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And the first one finally saying, I've already told you more than I know. Small town. Naomi arrives. And immediately the women, presumably friends of hers before they had left for Moab, begin to ask, rhetorically ask, is that Naomi? Can that be Naomi? She's aged. She's stooped. She's not happy. Naomi, is that you? And the text says she responds and says, don't call me Naomi, pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter interesting, it's curious, isn't it? That she doesn't ask to be called sad or grief-stricken or mournful. None of those things. She asks to be called bitter. Is that descriptive of the condition, the state of her heart and soul? It's hard to blame her if that's the case. After all, look at all the loss she has experienced. Look at all the grief that has tormented her life. Call me bitter. And she's very pointed into exactly how she understands things have happened. Rereading verse 21. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I went away full, she says. Well, not really, Naomi. It was famine. I doubt anybody felt full at that time, but I get it. You're talking about a full family. And now, empty. In fact, you look at one Old Testament commentary after another and they will point to that word empty as one of the themes of this entire story. Naomi is empty feeling her life has ended, her hope for the future is gone, her, her way of maintaining herself, providing food and sustenance, gone. It's empty. Hmm. What's it like? What's it like to be empty? it's like the widow lying in bed the storm rages outside it's midnight her heart pounds and under the covers she reaches for his hand that's what has gotten her through so many nights but the bed is empty It's the young parents at the park. Listening to all the other parents laugh and tell stories of their children. And they go home, stand at that door to that nursery. It's empty. Like the husband who sits at the table table for one, looks over at that chair where she always sat before he found that note that said, I'm leaving. It's empty. You know, it strikes me that there could be another word that would describe that. The other word is the word alone. To be empty is to be alone. To be alone is to be empty. That's the reality that Naomi experiences. You know what that's like. Some of you are experiencing that right now. And it leads to a grief that is profound. In fact, the author Edgar Jackson captures it well with these words. Grief is a young widow trying to raise her three children alone. Grief is the man so filled with shocked uncertainty and confusion that he strikes out at the nearest person. Grief is a mother walking to a nearby cemetery to stand quietly and alone a few minutes before going about the tasks of the day. She knows that a part of her is in the cemetery just as a part of her is in her daily work. Grief is silent, knife-like terror and sadness that comes a hundred times a day when you start to speak to someone who is no longer there. Grief is the emptiness that comes when you eat alone after eating with another for many years. Grief is teaching yourself to go to bed without saying goodnight to the one who has died. Grief is the helpless wishing that things were different when you know they are not and never will be again. Grief is a whole cluster of adjustments, apprehensions, and uncertainties that strike life in its forward progress and make it difficult to redirect the energies of life. That's grief. That's Naomi. Alone, empty. But there's something about that that doesn't ring quite true. It doesn't ring quite true because of something that happened. Something that happened on the journey, on the road back from Moab to Bethlehem. Something that happened in the story. So let's go back to Ruth 1. We're going to begin in verse 7 again. With her two daughters-in-law, Naomi left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead and to me. That word kindness in the Hebrew is the word hesed. Hesed. It's the deepest kind of covenant, loyal, committed love that exists in the Old Testament. We'll come back to that concept in this series. So back in verse 8, May the Lord show you kindness as you have showed kindness to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. She says, I have nothing to offer you. I'm empty. There's no future. There's no one to provide for me. As I grow older, I have very few options as to what to do. Why would you come with me? Go back to your mother's home. You'll find new husbands. You can start a new life. But me, I'm empty, alone. And then something happens. What happens? changes the narrative. It challenges that word empty or the word alone. Something dramatic happens. It comes in the speech of a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. It's hard to remember that because of the power of the speech the covenantal, committed, companionate love that is expressed in what is said. In fact, I suspect that if you were to give that speech to a person who had never read the book of Ruth and they were to read that, they would say, this must be a speech spoken by a husband to his wife, by a wife to her husband. This must be a marital speech because that's where we usually hear it. I heard it. June 3, 2018, almost two and a half years ago, Cason's Cove, Kentucky, just a few miles from Bowling Green. It was there that a young couple married, Rachel Nicole Spadey and Austin Zachary Roberts. Austin calls me dad. It was standing there at that wedding altar as they exchanged their vows. They had each decided to write their own vows. And there was my son standing to my left as he began to recite his vows. I recognized them. I understood those words. They captured my heart and the hearts of everyone else there. Do you know that my son's father had to choke down the tears of these familiar words? As beautiful as they were, there at Cason's Cove, They actually were not spoken by a husband to his wife, not in the beginning, but by a daughter in law to her mother in law. Just as Orpah's lonely, silent form is disappearing back toward Moab, this is what we then read. Verse 15 Look, said Naomi, your sister in law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. It is one of the most powerful speeches, not just in Scripture, but in the annals of literature because it speaks so poignantly and so powerfully to that need, that desire we all have to know that we've not been abandoned, to know that we will not be alone, especially at those moments when we feel empty and alone, when we're grieving, when we're mourning, and frankly, when we've become bitter. It is in that context that Ruth says, Where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. And may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates us. Hesed. That's what that is, that covenantal faithfulness, that profound other-centered love, that love that says, you are not alone because I am with you. So my question is simple. How is it that after a speech like that, after a vow like that, that's the vow of this book? How is it that after that, just a few verses later, Naomi can say to her townspeople, I've come back empty. I am all alone in the world. How's that possible? Ruth is standing right there. The Ruth that has said, your people are my people. Your God, my God. Nothing but death will separate us. My life is bound up with yours. And Naomi says, call me bitter. The Almighty sent me away full and brought me back empty. I'm all alone. How can she say that? Now, please, I do not mean to diminish Naomi's grief. It is legitimately profound. I just want to understand empty? Alone? What about Ruth's vow? But the truth is, it didn't take me long to understand that. Not as I lingered over these verses, I I quickly got to the point of clarity. Because I have experienced that. I've experienced it when writhing on the asphalt pavement next to a wrecked bicycle. I've experienced it when writhing on the floor of a basketball court. I've experienced it when writhing on the field where we played football. In each case lying there, writhing because I had broken bones. Now there may be pains more severe than broken bones. I have not felt it. The pain was intense. Do you know that in those moments before I got medical care, the only thing on my mind was my pain. I cannot imagine a friend or a teammate standing above me and saying, Stop thinking so much about yourself, Randy. Start thinking about others. Start thinking about the joy of life up ahead of you. I can't imagine. Because there's something about pain, there's something about grief that causes one to be understandably self-absorbed, self-focused, self-centered. It just hurts so bad. And I think that's Naomi. The pain is so intense, the sorrow is so great, when she gets back to the place where her family had been whole, that through the tears she simply cannot see that God has provided someone to be with her. She's not alone, she's not empty. There's Ruth who has made a vow that is so all-encompassing as to make us weak at our knees. But because of the sorrow, because of the pain, because of her bitterness, she can't see it. So I wonder about you today. You who grieve, you who sorrow, you who weep, legitimately so. I wonder, is the pain so searing that you can't see that maybe God has provided for you in the pain? Is it so deep and the tears so many that it makes it hard to see the Ruth that stands at your side? In a couple of moments I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for two different people. One, I'm going to pray for that person for whom the pain is deep and is real and is incisive to the degree that it has been hard to see any other provision that God might have made. I'm going to pray that maybe you'll be able to see the person who has vowed to be with you. But I'm going to pray for a second person as well. I'm going to pray for the one who right now is not experiencing pain, is not in grief, is not sorrowing, but knows someone who is. And I'm going to pray that you'll voice that vow and live that vow to be with them. How, you ask? Well, listen to the words of the author and the poet Joseph Bailey as he answers that. Bailey writes, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. Grave, He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except to wish that he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour and more. Listened when I said something. Answered briefly. Prayed simply. And left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. I'm going to pray that you will be that person, that you will voice that vow, so that whether you're the person grieving or the person vowing, you will each discover God is in the vow.